often the question is not for people who feel like they have some kind of compulsive relationship with the game. The question is not, all right, how do we get you out of the game? The question becomes, how do we get the things that are working for you within the game out into the rest of your life? Welcome to The Neutral Ground. Do video games cause people to become more violent? What can we learn from our video game choices? This week, our guest is Dr. Alex Chris. Dr. Chris runs a psychotherapy practice in New York City, where he treats patients with various issues, including video game addiction, a term he disputes, and we talk about that in this episode as well. We're going to be discussing Alex's book, The Gaming Mind, A New Psychology of Video Games and the Power of Play. In this episode, we talk about everything from how video games can help us experience play more, how they can reveal areas of life in which we are struggling, and as I teased, we dive into the topic of video games and violence. Speaking of video games, I have a challenge for you. See if you can hit that subscribe slash follow button before the timer runs out on this episode. You'll receive 50,000 points and my sincere gratitude. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alex Chris. Alex, welcome to The Neutral Ground. How are you doing today? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. We're going to be discussing uh, actually uh, video games and, and a plethora of other topics connected to that. And we're going to be doing so through your book, The Gaming Mind, A New Psychology of Video Games and the Power of Play. But before we kind of dive into the, the specifics of things, I'd actually like to ask you to talk a little bit about the genesis of your study. What made you want to pursue this particular topic? Yeah, it's um, it was a pretty organic uh, project that I even sort of talk a bit about at the beginning of the book in terms of how this all came to be. Um, <clears throat> I have played video games since I was a child, um, and it was uh, in many ways a big part of my life, but also in many ways a pretty um, uh, segregated part of my life that felt very especially felt very separate from the kind of professional identity that I was starting to cultivate in my adulthood when I was trained to become a clinical psychologist. And uh, I, I, despite training in psychology, I'd never been particularly um, thoughtful about the psychology of video games, sort of these, uh, these two separate things I was doing in my life. And then towards the end of my training, I had an experience at the clinic I was working at where um, <clears throat> essentially my colleagues who generally were very curious, compassionate people, um, started speaking pretty dismissively, even derisively, about a person coming into the clinic uh, who presented with a lot of sort of compulsive gaming-related re behavior. And uh, it struck me how um, there was just like no language for understanding games from a sort of compassionate, psychologically-minded point of view. So I started thinking about it. I started researching what was out there. Uh, that turned into an academic paper that was published. Then the idea was, well, maybe this could also be a book for a more general audience. And it kind of just grew from there. You know, what, what hit me with that opening section talking about this concept of the gamer kid is that I had a student last year, and I have a lot of uh, college students who are into gaming, you know, a lot, of course. Um, but I had one particular student who he wanted to talk to me in my office about like his his career path you know not uncommon 
But of course, I, I'll begin by asking them, so what do you like to do? What are you interested in? And he just kind of hung his head and just said, I just like playing video games. But he did so in this kind of almost shameful way, like, that's not normal. I shouldn't I shouldn't just be interested in video games. And I remember thinking, I, I told him, I said, that's a skill set. Let's stop looking at it as simply just, you know, something you, you're only supposed to do on the side and it can never be anything more or reveal more about you. And I remember asking him, what do you like about it? And we got into this great conversation about, you know, the idea he likes the challenge, he likes the one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes he likes to challenge himself. And I said, okay, these are all skills that you can apply to other areas as well if you choose to, you know, but there are also a whole host of ways that you can get paid being involved in gaming. So there's no need. And he just started laughing at one point because I think he thought, I never thought of it really that way. I mean, you really, you hit the nail on the head, right? This concept of shame, right? Internalized shame <clears throat> is so prevalent and is actually such a big part of the psychology of video games and the people who play them. Um, it's something I talk to uh, you know, parents and sort of loved ones of people who play games all the time, as well as, as players themselves, because it can seem counterintuitive. It's sort of like, if this is, they do it all the time. They love it. We're living in an era where video games are, you know, a, a though they do still carry a stigma, they're so popular, they're everywhere. But even so, somebody who plays games all the time, who even sort of self-identifies as a gamer, there's this part of them that feels like this isn't what they're supposed to be doing with their life, right? They shouldn't be spending this time. There's something wrong or bad about it. And um, one of the big effects that can have is it really inhibits curiosity, exactly as you're describing, right? That someone can spend all this time doing it and it's like they've never taken a second to think of like, hey, what does this say about me as a person? What have I learned from, from playing all of these games? Why do I play this game and not that game? Why, do, why am I so good at this one and not that one? Um, you know, what does it all mean? Or what, and how could it maybe even translate into life outside of the game? Instead, it becomes like I experienced, I think, in my own way growing up, this kind of very segmented, separate part of someone's life and identity. Yeah, some of the games you mentioned, and we're going to dive into the book now in a second. I think we, we have a similar kind of history arc in terms of gaming, which kind of just made me smile. And I think I even told you in the email, you mentioned um, the store Babbage's, which is no longer around, I think. But that was actually my one of my first jobs, like uh, real W-2 form jobs, let's say. So uh, that that made me smile. Let, let's... you. you you dive into particularly the game Silent Hill 2, which another game that I, I remember as well. The first one was, was phenomenal as well. And for those who are maybe unfamiliar with it, it's kind of a psychological horror game, essentially. And it's actually really well done. It has movies now as well. But what I want to talk about is the idea of choices and ramifications, because you, you have to make certain choices in the game and your decisions impact what types of endings you can actually see. And I found it fascinating how you struggled, not with the game. You could beat the game so easily, right? But you struggled because you had developed this kind of relationship to the character, conceived it in a certain way, and it made it more difficult for you to make certain choices that you felt were outside of the characteristics of that particular figure. Can you talk a little bit about 
this idea of of building a relationship with a character because this is another area where I think sometimes people might feel a bit ashamed about this idea of well I actually feel interest interest in this character. Meanwhile, we do this with books, we do this with movies, we build connections to to characters all the time. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of of building a character relationship in gaming as well and what that can maybe do for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Silent Hill 2, you know, I could talk about all day, right? And is this, I, I for me personally, it was an important game and I think it just represents you know, from that era, the early 2000s, one of the kind of evolutionary leaps forward in the in the medium where it, um, you know, developers just started thinking about new ways that this kind of interactive art form could evoke different kinds of emotional experiences. One of the things that makes Silent Hill 2 so unusual is that, yeah, it has this mechanic where the way that you behave in the game affects the ending, but it's types of behaviors that typically games wouldn't usually prioritize. And perhaps even more importantly, you don't entirely know if you're doing what you're doing or how it's going to link up to what you get at the end. And there is um, one ending that you get uh, in which the main character ultimately commits suicide, which you derive from, among other things, spending a lot of the game at low health, which is from a kind of gaming standpoint, it's a very counterintuitive thing where you're, you're supposed to like, you know, not want to be close to death. Right. But it, it uh, challenged players if they wanted to sort of see a different psychological outcome or right, behavioral outcome for the character to sort of through the prism of the gaming mechanics step into their shoes, right? What would it be like to play as someone who really doesn't care if they live or die, right? And, and uh, gets themselves into reckless situations. And even if they get hurt, they don't, you know, take a health pack to, to heal themselves up in this way that we're used to doing in gaming. And, uh, it was a really striking personal experience for me because I found that even after I looked it up online and understood that this was the mechanic, I had a really impossible time actually playing that way. It was too anxiety provoking. It, it preyed too much on some of my own uh, unresolved grief and, and issues at the time. And, uh, you know, that's, Silent Hill is one sort of remarkable example of how that plays out, but in so many myriad ways across different games, there is this way in which, um, you know, players are kind of invited to, you know, walk in someone else's shoes in in one way or another. And, you know, it can be really wide ranging. Uh, Some games might be a much more straightforward kind of uh, power trip of just like, you know, how would you like to be someone incredibly strong and powerful who can cut his way through all these bad guys in a pretty sort of simplistic, you know, uh, moral progression. But then, um, you know, there's also really uh, all kinds of other interesting dynamics that can emerge. I was speaking to a patient of mine recently about, they were actually describing the the relationship between their sibling and their sibling's partner, where they had met online in a game and the the partner played sort of a healer in in one of these online role-playing games and was sort of their role was to protect my patient's sibling. And we were talking about how that seemed so emblematic of the relationship that actually existed offline. There was this kind of um, uh, sort of support and support, you know, supporter, supportee kind of dynamic going on there. And um, you, you just see this in so many different ways playing out, right? That um, games can be this opportunity to try on different kind of emotional, social hats. It's funny you mentioned that because um, when I did, when I used to play, uh, an MMO called EverQuest. I was uh, 
in picking my characters, I always went toward the shaman. And specifically the shaman uh, on the, the good side, let's say the kind of the barbarian race class um, that had access to the good cities versus the bad, you know, cities. I, and I always went to that character because it allowed you to sort of do just about everything to a point. So like I could heal a little bit, which was great because if I saw somebody struggling, I could just like cast a heal and be like, there you go, go, go do your thing, you know, or I could do some damage if need be, if I'm by myself, you could solo. And that very much just was in my character. When I wanted to be alone, I did it. I soloed and I could do that with that class. But at the same time, when I felt like ah, I need a little more social interaction, I could then slide into a group and then heal or do some damage or something like that. So you're 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 absolutely right that it 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 allows us to to really kind of it reveals to us, let's say, aspects of our of ourselves, of our own anxieties. And this just even made me think, and I, I hope I'm not wrong here. I believe there's a similar kind of thing in Resident Evil 2, where you get down to a certain health. And you play the rest of the game with that low health. And I believe I tried it once. And I'm pretty sure it just went once. Because I died very quickly. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Can't do it. Too anxiety driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, it, it like any uh, artistic medium, it, yeah, it's always striking to... Um, to really think about, yeah, what, what we gravitate towards and what we don't. And, you know, some of these games that, uh, you know, like these horror games, right? Some people I know just wouldn't even go near them to begin with, right? It's too intense. It's too much. Um, it's, uh, it's not the language around video games that has generally been part of the mainstream kind of discourse where, um, you know, I mean, I've, uh, uh, fallen prey to it too. I remember not a few years ago when uh, um, a, a game called Bloodborne came out that uh, is sort of in this genre of, of punishingly difficult games, one of which I even write about in the book called Dark Souls um, or Demon Souls is the one I write about. And I remember the game, Bloodborne came out and there was just this talk around it of being like, this is like one of the best games ever made. And I was like, wow, if it's such a great game, I have, to, I have to play it. Part of me knew, like, I don't like these kinds of games. They're not good for me. I don't, they're just like not, they don't play to my skill set. I don't like it. And in the same way that like, you know, if someone recommends a book, sometimes I can sort of say like, well, I don't know that this is really, this isn't my kind of thing. This is my kind of movie. Somehow with games, we can still sometimes have this idea of like, it's not personal. It's not based on sort of preference and taste and psychology. It's just kind of objective. This is fun. Um, it's a, it's an older, less sophisticated way of understanding the medium that, uh, that, yeah, that even someone who's written a book about another point of view can still get wrapped up in. Um, but it's, yeah, it's so true. It's such an idiosyncratic art form, right? Because you are, um, you have to participate in it. So there has to be something compelling in it for the player. So we're going to, let, let's dive into this concept of play as well. Okay. And, and something else that occurred to me as I was reading your book how we how we think about play as a child versus an adult. So when when we're young, we view space quite interestingly, right? Because if you bring a child to a playground, to them, 
<clears throat> what they see is open world, infinite space possibilities. I can go anywhere. But to the parent or guardian, they've established a kind of boundary that's there, right? It's either the fencing or maybe it's the, you know, the sand or, or whatever it is. It, the boundary is there. Video games offer us, both as children and even as adults, a kind of similar playground. There are boundaries there in terms of the coding, right? Everybody who's played games long enough with worlds, you eventually, you try to run off the map a little bit, right? And you see, up, oh, it won't let me do it. Very similar to that idea of the playground. And you mentioned, of course, one of the earliest ones that kind of had this great exploratory level or, or landscape, and that is Mist. And I remember Mist quite a bit. And for me, it was almost too open to me at that time. That I would, I was one of those people that you kind of mentioned in the book that kind of looked at it and went, I'm not sure what to do with all of this space. I'm not really sure. I'm used to that kind of simple console gaming more than anything. Now, you also mention a, a patient named Patricia, or called Patricia, and she loves Fallout 4, a game that I also love. I fire that up probably at least once a year, and just to do kind of walk around and wandering around in this wonderful open world, this play area. I think we can easily see the, the playing value of this open world exploration concept in games. But from a psychological perspective, what do they reveal to us as players or how do they help us learn something about ourselves, this concept of openness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, it varies from individual to individual, which is part of the value of the openness, right? As we can kind of project meaning onto it. You know, one of the things that that is so distinctive about if you observe children playing like in a playground is that um, uh, how, for the most part, <laughs> they are um, uh, they're very unselfconscious about the point of what they're doing, right? Like if there's like a big jungle gym, like it's climbing to the top of it, like is its own reward, right? Like that's that's the point. Um, as you get older, it, there can start to be this kind of social inhibition around like, well, why am I doing this? Like, what is the value of this? Um, and, you know, gaming sometimes uh, helps uh, bridge that gap between a sort of earlier phase of open-ended play and the sort of more uh, conscious, rational um, perspective that we grow into as we get older. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting to think about even, you know, in terms of wondering like what you do on your yearly return to Fallout 4, you know, like what meaning do you find in that, right? For some people, um, you know, they might have some very concrete objective to unlock a new achievement, right? Or sort of fulfill some specific goal. Other people, for whatever reason, might find themselves more comfortable wandering around. Let's see if I can go someplace I've never been to before. Um, letting it, the openness sort of speak for itself a bit more. Um, yeah, Mist was a really interesting example where I think that people, uh, including adults, kind of let themselves get a bit lost in the openness, in part because they felt like they were participating in this really cool, beautiful, technologically advanced new thing. So there was kind of like, well, the purpose is that like this is new and like it was one of the first CD-ROM games. So it was this kind of like I'm participating in some sort of technological uh, advance. But really what I think a lot of people got out of it was 
this kind of uh, permission to freely explore a new place. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a side quester. I will just I will will fire up Fallout Four or um, even Shadow of Mordor, which has a lot of great quest side quests, and I'll just follow side quests and stuff like that. And then, for some reason, for me, that's that's enough. I don't even I'll, I'll beat maybe the main storyline like once in a game sometimes, and then the rest of the time I'm just interested in the side quests and and what's going on there. And I think it's it is that idea of crafting an identity with the character through the side quests that I probably find to be the most interesting. This is uh, kind of a, a bit of a side question here, but do you ever load up like one of those um, programs that let you simulate DOS or, and, and do you ever actually, when was the last time you loaded up Myst? Boy, you know, Periodically over the years, they would re-release Mist in various formats. They did like a 3D version and things like that. So I would usually at least briefly check that out. If um, I can't think of the last time, maybe when I was researching the book, I did a quick like dive back in just to sort of like have that little rush of nostalgia. Um, but I certainly haven't <clears throat> played it meaningfully, right, in a sustained way uh, in many, many years. It's interesting because that seems like one of those games that would translate really well to like virtual reality kind of stuff. Like that would be just just perfect. From from something exciting and exploratory, I want to get very serious about something in the book that I had never heard of before. I'd never heard of the game Depression Quest, which to some watching or listening to this might misconstrue the title to be a joke in some ways, but it's not. I assure all of you listening, it's not. It's actually a game that is intended to explore the weightiness of choices from the perspective of someone dealing with clinical depression. So like a choice of making the bed almost takes on the kind of status of slaying a dragon in some sense. And there is no triumphant victory here, right? Which is true to life with depression and moving through it. But it does involve simulating this idea of choice and ideas and and consequences to a degree, which I find to be fascinating. I went to the website and I actually played the game because I wanted to get a sense of this before I asked you about it. And I'd like to kind of ask you a two-part question here, but they, they're linked. What would an individual who is suffering from clinical depression learn from exploring a game like that? And what would someone who does not experience clinical depression, learn from the game that might be helpful in caring for someone with clinical depression? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's it's hard to say generally, right? Because I, I like so much of what we're talking about, you know, this is, <clears throat> there's so much that happens between the sort of individual relationship between, an indiv between a person and the game that they're playing and what it speaks to or doesn't. But, you know, and I, I, I wrote about Depression Quest in part, in a chapter where I sort of talk about the history of gaming, because I want to highlight, I think, a pretty common misconception, which is that, you know, that games are all sort of uh, these big blockbustery, uh, maybe people think are violent, right? This sort of, um, that there's really um, such a diversity and variety to video games being made now and the, the accessibility of the technology and, and, and sort of, uh, um, the different platforms that one would um, make a game on 
it's, you know, I mean, it's just exponentially exploded over the past, you know, decade or more that a single person can uh, make a really sophisticated game, you know, working on their own small teams, make things. And there's been just an explosion of work amongst sort of alternative kind of indie developers, the sort of LGBT queer community as its own um, uh, sort of branch of gaming that is really sort of uh, a, a big part, I think, of people who um, suffer from uh, marginalization in, in different ways. And it's it's been a big outlet. It's also been a source of a lot of stigma and, and online abuse. But when you create a game like Depression Quest, which as you say, is sort of this text-based adventure, so to speak, of you know, someone suffering from serious depression, you know, again, it, you, you're inviting someone to put on those shoes, right? To put on a different hat. In it's, um, I think that the, the paradox of it is in one way, it's uh, extremely different from a, what you would maybe think of as a, as a sort of typical or mainstream video game. But on the other hand, it's actually, all, it's all on a continuum, right? Like rather than putting on the, you know, the shame and barbarian hat, you're putting on the depressed 20 something hat, right? It's, it's the same idea of this, uh, an opportunity to step into, as you were saying before, like a sort of boundaried playground um, where you can potentially experience something without it being overwhelming, without it being too real or without limits, right? It, it has, there's only certain ways you can interact with the game. You click on certain options, right? There's, it, you're not going to be inundated with this sort of depression, but you are going to sort of, in a limited way, be asked to um, experience it. And someone with depression, I mean, look, they might hate it, but they might also recognize something in that that speaks to them and, and in that way feel less alone. And someone who has not had that experience might have the opportunity through this kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of system of the game, right. By sort of, by playing the rules of the game, they're sort of being induced into, uh, uh imagining what it might be like to, uh, deal with, uh, something like clinical depression. And, um, again, they might hate it or they might, find it to be really thought provoking or sort of link them up with ideas or, or uh, an empathy with someone they know that um, was maybe there on some level, but they hadn't quite accessed the game became this, this bridge for them to get in touch with some part of themselves that they hadn't otherwise known how to get in touch with. When you start to discuss your relationship with Jack, who I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that is the, the gamer kid that's mentioned at the very beginning that your colleague brought up that, that title. Um, you bring in the work of D.W. Winnicott to try to, uh, to help and, and, and explain or examine the relationship between fantasy and maturation. We talked about Winnicott actually a little bit in a previous episode on the podcast with Tolkien and the importance of enchantment or play as well with Dr. John Rosegrant. But can you talk a little bit about Winnicott and this relationship between fantasy and maturation and why it's so important specifically, you know, for, for your study. Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, Donald Winnicott was a, a pediatrician and psychoanalyst in the middle of the 20th century who um, belonged to what was known as the British independent group, which was this group of psychoanalysts who borrowed a, a bit from sort of more traditional Freudian theory and also from, uh, another branch of the field known as object relations theory. And Winnicott in particular was really interested in how um, we can think about human experience 
as this kind of negotiation of fantasy and reality and where play comes into it and what play is and how it sort of manifests and changes over the course of the lifespan. And, you know, essentially what he um, delineates is this idea that uh, at its most extreme, right, fantasy is this purely internal experience, right? What, what we fantasize about what exists in our minds um, is uh, a world in which we are omnipotent. We control everything that happens, um, but we are also alone in that world, right? There is no meaningful contact with the external realities or other people. So it is sort of, um, we are all powerful, but also all alone. Then reality at its most extreme, the, the interaction with the outside world is social and dynamic and where we, we learn new things and meet new people and develop relationships, but it is also deeply frustrating because we have very limited control. And, uh, Growing up, essentially, is learning how to strike a balance between the omnipotence of fantasy where we kind of start our life, where we don't even really have a concept of the outside world. It, we, it, we're, you don't even really have a concept of I for quite some time when you're first born to, um, you know, living in, in the real world and participating as an adult in, in a civilized society, so to speak. And play is this, um, what Winnicott identifies as like one of the most important and fundamental aspects of human experience in which two or more people come together and kind of um, mix and match their inner and outer worlds with each other, right? So where you bring a bit of your fantasy into some space and somebody else brings a bit of their fantasy into that space and you sort of play around with it and sometimes you get frustrated and then you have to deal with those frustrations, right? And I, in the book and, and, and in Winnicott's own work, you know, give examples of, you know, children playing pretend, right? One kid says like, I'm Superman and starts running around and the other kid says, no, I want to be Superman. And then the other kid says, well, we can't be two Supermen. And then there's a, there's a threat to the play. Is, is, are they going to just say, well, I'm going home then and the play is going to end? Or do they say, oh no, like in this world, there's two Supermen, but like, I can, you know, fly faster, but you can fly higher, right? Or um, I can shoot lasers, but you can shoot lightning, right? Like what, how do two or more people navigate the desire for omnipotence and the desire for social contact? Um, and Winnicott would argue that the play never really stops, right? That when two people sit down and talk about a film they just saw or are looking at a painting and talking about what they think and feel about it, they are engaging in that play, right? They're bringing their inner world and having it intermingle with other people's inner worlds. And um, the, you know, he and, and other people who've written about play would talk about that, you know, when adults would look at something like a game and uh, I mean, Winnicott didn't talk about video games. He was not around for, for that sort of rise in our culture, but when adults look at a game and sort of dismiss it as frivolous, um, as just as something a child would do, that there's something really tragic in that, right? That they, that person has maybe allowed themselves to go too far along the continuum into reality, right? Losing touch with the value of play, whatever that might mean for them, right? That that there is something um, that that doesn't just belong in the purview of children, right? That is important throughout our lives. That we we have ways of um, accessing our sort of inner world and letting it breathe out in the real world in a way that feels safe and interesting and generative. People today talk a lot about 
about how uh, children don't play anymore, but they tend to think of it in terms of outside environments, things like that, where they have to negotiate just like what you said, essentially. They have to negotiate play with rules and things like that. It, at, toward the end of your study here, right, when you, when you close up the study, <clears throat> do you see, do, do, would you say that there is just as much value in the play that has to be negotiated in today's games, right? Because the older games that we, we grew up with tended to give you, it's not that they didn't have two-player co-op games, they did. And certainly in the arcades, especially, that was an environment where you had to negotiate quite a bit when you had to play with someone else. But today, there seems to be so many more games that require not even just two, but sometimes, I mean, massive MMOs, you've got thousands, essentially. In your professional opinion, do you think that there is just as much value in having young people negotiate and play in that virtual environment as there is, let's say, the outside one? Yeah, I think it's hard to put a, <laughs> excuse me, a, a strict value judgment on it. But um, I certainly think that, yeah, there is equivalent value, even if they can pull sometimes for different things, right? Different aspects of, of a child's uh, development that, uh, yeah, there are, as we've been saying, so many different kinds of games that offer different kinds of emotional experiences. Some of them might be very kind of linear and rigid. Some of them might be really open-ended and exploratory. Some of them might require somebody to play with one or five or a hundred or a thousand other players competitively, cooperatively. Um, it, there's such a range of experiences that are out there. Some games, you know, might have require a lot of really creative, uh, Maneuvers, you got to build things, you have to sort of collaborate and coordinate. Other games, um, you know, it's much more limited what a player can actually do. Uh, you know, the exact sort of form through which children and adults express themselves in this way keeps changing. Like you said, like at the arcade, some a lot of the games are pretty simple, but like, you know, making sure that no one cuts you in line if you put your quarter on the machine. Like, you know, that's its own social negotiation that, again, is this question of like, you know, where's where's the play end and something more kind of, a more grimmer reality begins, right? That that was its own education, right? For people who were, for whom that was a part of their childhood or their adolescence. So it's the same idea, right? That, um, uh, you know, I talked to my, some younger patients and, and uh, about not just, uh, their literal experience of playing a game online, but like coaxing their friends to join when they want to do it, but their friends maybe are doing other stuff or, you know, uh, finding ways to coordinate times for a certain gaming event where they need a bunch of people online at one time, right? Or um, how they handle the situation where they were linked up in a party with some people they didn't know and who they didn't like, what they were saying over the online chat. You know, like there are... Um, new issues that the current technology and, and sort of gaming culture create. And so it's hard to say that they're better or worse, but they certainly are, I think, no less vivid in terms of what they demand from a child in terms of what we're saying, this negotiation between uh, 
uh, you know, uh, fantasy and maturing into sort of being part of the world. It's so funny. I had, um, I had Dr. Christopher Bartell on who also, he wrote a book on, on video games and video game culture. And I waxed nostalgic about the days of putting the token or coin on top of the arcade face because it was a declaration. I'm here. I've got next. But in, in listening to you say it, it, it made me think about how oftentimes young people, even today, do the same thing, even just when they put their name in in the queue for who's going to fight next in, the, in, in an online fighting game, let's say, right? They're establishing, this is me, this is my name. I'm putting it up for everyone to see that I'm, I, have ne- uh, I have next. And, and you get a similar result, although you may not have the physical proximity uh, that, that you had in the arcades, you still have that idea of the declaration. I want to move toward the big question here that many people are going to be thinking about, which is this idea of the connection between violence and video games. And correct me if I'm wrong here. So my understanding through your book is that there is very little in terms of persuasive evidence that video games cause individuals to become violent. However, what they can do is help people manifest ideas and feelings that are already inside of them through the games so they can enact violence through the games. And that's something that's already in them, not from the game. Additionally, and I think in some sense this is a positive thing, is that they can reveal the anxieties and problematic thoughts that are within us, such as through your example of the patient named Cole that you talk about in the book. How do you see this relationship between acts of violence and playing violent video games? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's a um, it's a uh, hot button topic that um, has maybe waned a bit in recent years, as I think um, sort of the anti gaming establishment, as it were, has oriented much towards what I think they feel is the more fruitful target of blaming games as causing addiction, uh, which is something we can also talk about potentially away from violence, because yeah, as you say, um, the, the link between playing violent games and acting out real world violence has never been established. There was a real fervor following the um, school shooting in Columbine, Colorado in 1999, where gaming was sort of um, really brought to the fore as this potential scapegoat. And this this was a way of explaining why this horrible thing had happened. And uh, before that, there had not been much interest in uh, scientific research around games in general, and certainly not in terms of um, their violence potential. And then there was this explosion of it. Uh, And uh, reviews of that work more recently have shown how there was a lot of... um, bias and political pressure that uh, influenced what sort of emerged during that time. So um, meta-analyses, which are essentially we take a bunch of studies and um, sort of see what the effect is across all of them, have shown that really there's there's no real establishment of a link between someone playing a violent video game and acting violently in the real life in real life. What there is in a few studies that sort of uh, took this perspective is this idea of games as a form of displacement which is what you were alluding to, right? That uh, aggressive uh, impulses that exist in the individual might get channeled into a game 
rather than to other sources, um, potentially sources that could be more harmful, it's hard to say. Um, displacement in and of itself is not necessarily healthy, right, or therapeutic. Some people displace onto a, a, a game or an object or a person, and if they don't really ever take time to understand why they're doing it or what it means, they might just keep going back to that same thing over and over again. And people certainly can get caught in compulsive loops with games where they, they know they're getting something out of it. There's some release that it's offering them, but they don't quite understand what it is. And, and so they kind of just feel like they have to keep going back for more and more and more. But, um, you know, generally speaking, um, the idea is that, you know, games offer this sort of emotional release without the, the literal physical consequences. So in that way, they can be maybe a, a meaningful source of displacement. And if we actually do take time to understand why somebody's playing a game, right, which has been one of the real limiting factors, I think, in past decades is um, because there hasn't been much of a curiosity about the psychology of gaming, um, because the sort of norm wouldn't be that if you saw somebody playing a violent game for 10 hours a day to say like, I wonder what this is about. And like, you know, this, maybe there's someone this person can talk to really about the game and about why they play this game and sort of understand it, see it as meaningful. Um, it was less likely that that person would um, have the opportunity to use the game as a lens through which to understand their anxieties, their suffering. Um, but I think if you do have that opportunity, it can be incredibly fruitful. Um, and can really be a way to help someone deal with anger and anxiety and, and other issues. Um, and on top of that, you know, I think that there's uh, increasingly evidence coming out and research coming out now that sort of some of those uh, older stigmas and biases have, have had some distance of people looking into um, the kind of pro-social benefits of even potentially violent games that involve moral decision-making that involve um, uh, collaboration, cooperation with other players, right? That there might actually be um, social benefits to um, participating in those kinds of social world, uh, virtual social worlds. You brought up addiction there as well. And you actually have a contention with that term or you, you dispute it even to a degree, the term video game addiction in some ways, or at least the, the way that it's commonly thrown around. So can you talk a little bit about that dispute? What What is it about? Because many people listening to this will say, well, it seems pretty straightforward to me. You're addicted to it, and that's bad. So what exactly is the the, the kernel of your dispute? Yeah, it's a, it's a semantic argument, I suppose, at its core, but it's also one uh, aimed at trying to reduce the stigma around game playing and increase the, the likelihood that individuals who play games and professionals who work with people that play games will, will sort of regard this behavior as meaningful and, um, and something to treat with compassion. The issue around addiction is that you know, traditionally addiction uh, models place the, the thing that the person is addicted to as the kind of driving force, right? That a substance, for instance, there's this idea that there's a chemical influence that, uh, that alcohol or cocaine has that drives further use. And um, this is, it's a, there's arguments, you know, obviously about the, that addiction is more complicated than that. And that I think anyone who works with addiction knows that that is true. Um, addiction has chemical, but also social and psychological components. But still, when you're talking about something like alcohol or cocaine, it's pretty easy to make the argument, you know, there's, 
there are these pretty uh, uniform, predictable chemical effects of getting high, of having withdrawal, ways in which tolerance is built up, right? It, it's, it's a, a chemical uh, biophysical process where uh, a lot of the kind of responsibility, so to speak, can really be placed on the substance. Um, games are not so simple as that, right? As we've been talking about, there's so many different kinds of games and different people react to even the same game in such different ways. One person might become quote unquote addicted to a game that another person um, has no interest in, that another person plays casually without ever getting addicted. And, uh, you know, that's true of substances as well, but the, the point is trying to locate like where is the origin of that kind of uh, addictive potential? Is it in the game itself? Or is there something in the person, right, that makes them primed to, um, uh, you know, experience it? And, you know, it, we don't need to get too much into sort of substance lingo, but, you know, even within substances, there's a lot of arguments about um, how useful the term is, especially with substances that generally have a low addiction potential, right, where it seems to be more a psychological sort of experience that gets people connected to it. So with games, I've just found it more useful to refer to it as a, uh, as a compulsion, a compulsive play, right? As this kind of alternate terminology that really suggests that there's something in the person that drives them to return to a certain game or certain gaming experience again and again, which um, is particularly useful in terms, as what it, in terms of what it implies for treatment, right? That rather than suggesting that the solution is to remove the addictive element from the person's life, it suggests that what is really going to be useful is to understand the drive to, to play. That that's the issue, so to speak, rather than the person has this kind of toxic element in their life, which is the game. And if you could just get rid of that, then all would be well to instead suggest that um, the game is offering something to the person, something necessary, but perhaps insufficient, right? Because that's why they have to keep going back to it maybe in an unhealthy way, because they're getting something, but not a full understanding or a, a full um, sort of release of, of whatever it is they're dealing with. And that's really what needs to be understood rather than sort of just branding the game as bad and that, and then wiping your hands of it. Yeah. As you were saying that it made me think about, uh, this is not a, a perfect analogy here, but I know for people who, have quit smoking, sometimes they'll talk about they don't miss the cigarette itself necessarily. A lot of them talk about missing the the social aspect of the cigarette, how it was it was usually connected with some sort of social moment, uh, talking to colleagues outside on a break or um, you know, things like that. And then to connect with the video game aspect as well, I have friends who used to play uh, MMOs like EverQuest and, and World of Warcraft. And they'll say, I miss the social aspect of it. I miss talking to people and having those meaningful relationships where, you know, for a span of, of 15, 30, 45 minutes of doing like one specific quest that they had to do together and they had to coordinate just perfectly, they miss that meaningful aspect of that relationship that's built in those games. And if you ask them, well, so why don't you go back and, and play? They'll say, well, I don't really want to play the game. <laughs> like, they're like, I, I don't, that's not the part that I miss. It's, it is quite literally just that social 
aspect of it. So I think I think you're not not to say you're right. That sounds too you know you're right. But what I mean is I you you you're saying something here that I think more people need to listen to, which is this idea of that the game is telling you something. And that's really the, what you're describing about you know the, the people playing the MMO you know or or um, you know who used to smoke cigarettes a lot is really the crux, I think, of, of how I think about <clears throat> this from a psychotherapy standpoint and the work I do, which is often the question is not for people who feel like they have some kind of compulsive relationship with the game. The question is not, all right, how do we get you out of the game? The question becomes, how do we get the things that are working for you within the game out into the rest of your life, right? That if there's something that you keep going back for because it's, it's uh, helping you release anger or it's giving you a sense of social connection, right? Like then that's, that's real. That's a part of who you are. That's meaningful, but the game maybe isn't giving you all that you need or that it's, there's something limited there that could stand to grow. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I've, I've worked with people with cigarettes with a similar thing, right? Where they're like, I miss having a reason to step outside and just like chat with people in quiet. And it's like, that's very legitimate, right? Like that's, um, it would be so uh, unfair and, and kind of, um, yeah, so dismissive to sort of just chalk that up to like the remnants of addiction, right? There's something that the the cigarette was offering you at a cost, right? And maybe a cost that became too much to pay, but that doesn't mean that the psychological social experience of it should be ignored. And the same can be said, I think, of people who uh, maybe they want to change their relationship with games, but that doesn't mean you got to throw out everything that comes along with that. So I've got one one final question here for you. You 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 professionally engage with this subject matter. You've written about it. If you were going to give concerned parents or guardians some guiding principles about how to approach this relationship between gaming and their children, what advice would you offer them? Yeah, that's a great question and one that comes up not infrequently in my certainly my number one capital letters advice, right, is for parents to uh, be curious about the games that their children play, <clears throat> that uh, games offer um, an insight into, as we're talking about, the psychology of the person playing them, including one's children, but also just for parents to realize that um, Games are so important to their children, right? And that having an empathy towards that, right? Treating it respectfully in that regard um, can be a really important way to bridge a divide that can form between parents and children around video games and other aspects of, um, you know, sort of youth culture and life. Um, you know, I often talk to parents about how, like, uh, you know, begin with the idea of, like, the I understand where they're coming from. I, it's very easy for me to empathize with a parent who finds the fact that their child plays a lot of games to be really anxiety provoking and confusing or upsetting. If you don't have a lot of context for that yourself and you just see your child logging on and doing God knows what for you know four hours straight or more, then it's really easy to be freaked out by it and to sort of, uh, and even maybe suspect that something sinister is going on. Um, but then, through that empathy, right, suggested parents then extend that same kind of empathy to their children. Like, what if you came at this from the perspective that this is 
important or that this is meaningful and um, that you might learn something by asking your child more open-endedly about what they play and why they play it. Um, and that that also tends to be a great sort of pathway to more constructive limit setting. You know, children and especially adolescents um, will always respond to discipline that will better respond to discipline that they feel is coming from a credible source, right? If they feel like a parent who kind of gets them and gets their, their gaming habits is sort of saying, you know, not tonight or like, and this, and, you know, time's up. It, it's going to be much more productive than if the dynamic is, you know, my mom thinks that this is uh, rotting my brains, right? My dad uh, is always threatening to just like take my games away from me, right? That creates this combative uh, dynamic in which the child really feels like, yeah, my parent doesn't understand what this means. So why should I um, listen to them? So empathy and compassion, I think, and curiosity really are at the, the, the core of all of this. Well, Alex, I think that's that's a great place to kind of bring this to a close. And I, I really enjoyed the book. I learned a lot from it myself. And I would absolutely recommend that any parents who are concerned about this relationship to pick it up to kind of gain a, another insight into how that can open up a new way of understanding your your child or, or you know, uh, even other uh, brothers and sisters and, and people like that, even students to a degree. I found myself even learning something as, as a teacher as well. So um, thank you really so much for that. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I, thanks for, for all those kind words about the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Alex Chris. If you did, check out his book using the link that I've provided in the episode notes below. You know, this episode has reminded me that it's been quite a few months since I fired up Fallout 4. I think I'll go do that. You know what? You go ahead and do the same with your favorite game. You've earned it. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day. And go fight something or blow something up or, or go on some kind of a quest.